You are listening to the Maranatha Teachings Podcast, a ministry of Maranatha Church. Maranatha Church is a house church in coastal Virginia with members that span over four generations. Our Bible time together is both instructional and conversational. I'm the pastor and teacher, Nicholas Larum. Welcome to the Dialogue. This is our sixth session, I believe, in Living in the Outpouring. And the title of this message is The Manifestation of the Spirit. And we're going to learn about that out of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is what kind of writing? Epistle. It's an epistle, which is a fancy word for? A letter. A letter. 1 Corinthians, what we call a book generally, is a letter. Now, Granted, it's a long letter, even for its day, but it's not a book, but we call it a book. So let's talk about letter writing in Greco-Roman antiquity. And this quote comes out of, well, this book by Stanley Stowers called Letter Writing in Greco-Roman Antiquity. I thought that sounded like a title of something. Yeah, it sounds like a title, doesn't it? So he writes... Most extant Greek and Latin letters begin with a prescript or a salutation that contains the name of the sender, the name of the addressee, and a greeting. The formula is Demetrius to Publius. Greetings. Often, the greeting was followed by a prayer for the recipient, sometimes by a wish for the recipient's health, and occasionally by a statement of thanksgiving to a god or gods. So, let's look at the epistle of 1 Corinthians in its format context. The salutation, as we just read in Roman Greco antiquity, from, to, and a greeting. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, that's your from, to the church of God that is in Corinth, that's your to. Grace to you and peace, that's your greeting. Now, grace and peace, that's a riff on a characteristic Hello in Greek, which I forget the exact word, but it's really close to kais, as how you greet people in, in the Greek society. And peace is a riff on the general Jewish salutation, which is shalom. shalom. Remember, he's addressing a Jew-Gentile church, and he says, grace and peace to you, and he goes on to say, from the Lord Jesus Christ, shalom from God. Anyhow. And right off the bat, he's letting you know who he thinks Jesus is, okay? But you see that he's following a standard letter format. Why should that even shock us? It's a letter to the Corinthians. So what I'm endeavoring to do is help myself and help, help us perhaps read the Bible better. I think we, we come to it with an expectation of the otherworldly that puts its actual format out of our reach, as if if humans were involved, somehow it makes it a lesser document. No, this is how God decided to communicate to us and preserve his communication for the ages. Imagine you wrote an email or you're having a discussion with somebody and somebody is reading that nearly 2,000 years after the event. That's something, isn't it? So as a letter, as a piece of correspondence, this has pretty much stood the test of time. The second part of a regular, or part of the form of a letter in this era, is the prayer and statement of thanksgiving. Well, where does Paul go next? I give thanks to my God for you always. 
That's 1 Corinthians 1.4. So we're clearly, in the cultural context, inside of a letter. Now, I'm not going to get into the types of letters there are. and he, he mixes several things, but overall, the character of this letter, and they have these types of letters in antiquity, is a corrective letter, an admonishing letter. And the way an admonishing letter would work is, and rhetoric would work, this is how people would be trained in speech and giving oratory and writing, letter writing would marry oratory, speaking, you would butter up the audience. You would praise them and encourage them, you know, a little sugar with the medicine that's about to come. And you'll see that in Paul when we delve into 1 Corinthians 1, Lord willing, next week. And if you've read 1 Corinthians this week, then you see that you're blessed, you're this, you're that. And then he says, look, <laughs> we got to talk about some things. So Paul's letter to Corinth. This would have been carried by personal messengers. In other words, it wouldn't have been sent by official post to a post office or a mailbox. Now, there was a mail system in the Roman Empire, but people didn't commonly access that. That was available for government and higher-ups, things of this nature. There were official mail carriers, but most people had correspondence carried by agents, people who were traveling, business representatives, friends, things of this nature, and possibly, or I should say most possibly, it would have been carried back to Corinth by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. And you read about them in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 through 18. That's at the tail end of the letter. I'm reading out of the NIV portions of those verses. Paul says, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Such men deserve recognition. Those are parts of verses 17 and 18. It would have been read aloud to the congregation in its entirety. So as these churches would have met, and they had a, a kind of like we do when we have a letter from a missionary, sometimes they'll read that entire letter. Now it's a couple of pages. It's not, you know, we have subsequently subdivided into 16 chapters. It might take us a little bit longer just to read for the, the entire book of 1 Corinthians. But right off the bat, you notice that when people congregated, it's a bit different than what you get in the United States. I recall when I was in that short-term missions trip in Africa, if the church was done in under three hours, you hadn't had church. It, you know, no, we, we're not going to walk all the way over here and for a 30-minute message. That's not happening. We're going to be get together for a while. So they would have read the whole letter out loud in its entirety, the entire message, which means that the recipients would have heard the entire context of the letter. They wouldn't have heard snippets of it, you know, where one person got to stand up and say, I know we were arguing about this, but I have this letter from Paul, and in the center of it, he has this phrase that proves my point. And then read that point that proves my position and says, okay, let's eat, have a nice day. They wouldn't do that. Now, when it's misused, we kind of call that thing proof texting. The estimated literacy rate in the Roman world was around 10%. Now, granted, Corinth is an urban center. There's more education in an urban center. Literacy might have been higher, but even if you push up you know, what, five percentage points past 10%, you've got a large portion of the congregation that cannot read. 
Here's another reason why this letter would have been read out loud. Reading was nearly always done out loud, even in private. This uh, Craig Keener mentions this in the IVP background commentary to the New Testament. And that's, that's Craig Keener's real wheelhouse, is Greco-Roman world, that kind of a thing. So it was always done out loud, even in private. We have samples of this from, uh, from some of Paul's other, le- other letters, Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And he goes on to say, and have that church, you read that letter as well. So it's read among you. That's not, you know, we were joking earlier about the Gutenberg Press and scribes writing it out. They didn't get the letter and then everybody wrote it down. We all sit down there. We're going to read this thing together silently. So I'm trying to help us get into the mind space of what the experience was like. To think, uh, not like a modern, but what this experience would have been, how this message would have come across. To, to, to put it more like in a modern experience, though, this would have been like the show that was on that night. Like everybody wants to be there, they don't want to miss it. Yeah, everybody watching the same show together. Right. And not giving spoilers, waiting for the end, because you've never heard it before, right? right. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5.27 I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. That's pretty strong language. You fit, that's towards the end of his first letter to the Thessalonians. And that's pretty strong. Oh, by the way, <laughs> you're under oath. You've got to read this out loud to everybody. This is, let's say, in the decade between 50 and 60. It's really like at the early part of, you know, the 52, 53, these things are being written. This is Paul writing. Augustine Hippo, ever heard of him? Nah, um, uh, you know, minor church father, uh, claimants to the Roman Catholicism and Calvinism both claim him as their progenitor. (laughs) I mean, massive influence in the church. He visited Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, somewhere around 387 A.D. So we're talking now 337 some odd years after these letters to the Corinthians are written. And I'm sharing this because when you read a book, reading a book is a solitary thing for us. You sit down, you have yourself a nice read. We don't think about that exercise much. But I think this incident that Augustine writes about in his Confessions, Book 6, can't remember the part, because I hadn't read Book 6, but I know the reference. (laughs) He's there to get baptized. He and his son are there to get baptized. Augustine is a highly educated man, and Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, has real strong preaching rhetoric, And it convinces Augustine he needs to convert to Christianity. Though his mother had been a Christian, Augustine had not. He decides to convert. He's going to get baptized. This is his comment on... Is it the same one they call St. Augustine? St. Augustine. Same guy? Same guy. Oh. Augustine of of Hippo. I watched the cartoon. So this is out of... (laughs) Yeah. This is out of Reading in the Brain. Stanislas Dahny. I think is how you pronounce his name. Fantastic book. But he, he records this in terms of you know, reading and and auditory, and he cites this example. He says, when he, that's Augustine or Augustine, 
paid a visit to Ambrose, then bishop of Milan, Augustine observed a phenomenon that he judged strange enough to be worth noting in his memoirs. So this was, this was so earth-shattering to him, it, it made part of his confessions. Now, you know, the city of God and Augustine's confessions are like the two major things he wrote amongst a bunch of stuff that he wrote. He writes, When Ambrose read, his eyes scanned the page and his heart sought out the meaning. But his voice was silent and his tongue was still. Anyone could approach him freely and guests were not commonly announced so that often when we came to visit him, we found him reading like this in silence for he never read aloud. You get it? You read out loud. You always read out loud. <laughs> reading silently to oneself is truly a modern thing. It's modern enough that if you read any writing, any books on writing, you go to any, any writing seminars, any instructor worth his salt will, will inform you that what you need to do once you've written your piece is to read it out loud. And not only read it out loud, but read it out loud to somebody else because your ear is going to catch things that your yeah. eyes are not. I had this experience today. I had, I had written in my journal, and I tried to be, you know, you get, we try to be very careful. I was trying to write a really good thing. And then I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and record this for a project. And I'm reading, and I'm like, I want to throw the thing out. This is not even real. It doesn't work. It doesn't flow. Right? No, it right? was a totally different experience. So... Understand that much of your, if not all, of your New Testament was composed in a way to play on the ear. One of the reasons why the King James Version has had such sustaining power, one of the reasons why Shakespeare has such sustaining power is its tremendous fluidity to the ear, its interplay, its change, its inter it's, it is just massively oratory. brilliant oratory, yeah. And it's amazing what happens when you hear the Scripture. Now, when we read, we hear an inner voice. This, this book is all on the neuroscience of how it is we make sense of these little symbols we call letters. It's a fascinating read, written in 2009. So I'm not saying you can't get that kind of experience reading to yourself as you do, but I want you to understand that the audience that's hearing this is hearing this. And so they're going to hear, like when you're listening to a piece of music, they're going to hear riffs. They're going to hear resonances in the message he's giving as he's trying to communicate things to them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just so, this is great. You know, I, 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 I share with Nick, I bought this volume of Spurgeon sermons, and I started reading them, and so what he's exactly talking about. When you read Spurgeon, it just flows like water. And I'm like, now I understand, I think one of the reasons they call him Prince of Preachers was because he, he put so much effort into his sermons. He must have done this, because even when you read it, it just, it's, flows. it's amazing, yeah. Some people are bored with it. It flows. Well, so, I, I know that I've, I've learned from his life that he did actually labor very long over his sermons. But yeah, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. And, and because he labored over it doesn't mean, doesn't make it any less, no. any no. of the less. There's this, I should say, I, I've encountered this idea, particularly inside of the independent, charismatic, 
group milieu a somehow a belief that a preached message, if it's prepared, somehow lacks the power of God behind it. As if, but, God forbid the worship team should miss the note or sing the song off key, why they weren't anointed. You know, that didn't happen by accident. People practice. Okay? So, this out loud thing, thank God we have the English translations that we do. I'm very thankful for it. But there's all kinds of wordplay that, that we're, we are completely blind to be, uh, because we don't, I don't think any of us here reads Hebrew. None of us really read Greek. And there are kinds of repetitions and alliterations and ideas that happen that we can't see because we're reading the English text. It requires a bit of work. It requires a bit of intentionality to press into the text to master it a little bit better, read it a little bit better, so that you understand what God wants better. And also, so that you don't get duped by people who don't know better, who make good-sounding arguments that aren't textually based and then lead people yeah. astray. That's never happened to me. I'll tell you what. I've never done that to somebody else. No, but now, now <laughs> when I hear a verse and it just doesn't sound right, most of the time, if I go back and read it in context, it becomes evident pretty quickly that, yeah, this guy's pulling this out of here. This is not even what this is. This is, is not saying. what this is about. So if you if you if your spirit says that doesn't sound right to me, go back and read it. You may just be right. Amen, amen. Even be be led even when you're reading, especially when you're reading. So I just wanted to share that example. I thought it was, you know, give you an idea. You know, you want to hear this thing. It would have been read aloud to the congregation in its entirety. Now, in 1 Corinthians, from chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 34, he has been dealing with matters related to worship. In the front part of the letter, he's dealing with all kinds of matters. But when he gets to chapter 8, he begins to deal with worship, worship practices, and the corporate community. This is important because this is the focus. As I've shared before, I have taught out of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 for decades in a manner that doesn't highlight that material in the way that the man in, that wrote it and the Holy Spirit that inspired it intended it to be taken. Okay? In terms of its thrust, I've taken it as here's a listing of things that everybody gets and, and the focus has been how I was taught on particular gifts and particular activities and particular activations. He's dealing with the corporate body coming together. That's the focus. He's dealing with worship issues. So in chapter 8, verse 1 through 10.22, he forbids Christians participating in pagan worship. So what he has to address is this blasé attitude that says, well, it's okay if we go to the feast and understand that there's no separation of church and state that functions of state get involved with functions of worship of, of their pagan deities, and it's a, it's, it's a social issue, it's a business issue. Hey, we're coming down to Apollo's festival, join us at the temple, we'll cut the deal. You know, I'm, hey, I have Christ, I'm okay. I mean, I know it's just an idol. I could sit down at this table and eat that meal, and then 
go to my house church and have the love feast. What's the big deal? You know, so he's dealing with these kinds of things. Meats offered to idols and, and actual participation. So you go and you participate in pagan worship. What does that do to your brother or sister in Christ who now thinks, well, then it's okay to worship all kinds of gods instead of the one God? No. In chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, he starts dealing with propriety in worship. This is the famous head coverings issue. You know, the man with the long hair and the, and the woman with uncovered hair and how she should just cut her hair. And there are all kinds of cultural things going on in there that yeah, I'm not going to get wouldn't, into. Wouldn't the hair covering thing actually have been specific, actually, to worship you? Because, because in the Greek worship at the idols, there was also the impropriety of the working women. That, yeah, the, and, you had that going on. And their hair would have been a feature of that pagan worship because it implied something about them. So you have you have all kinds of class things going on. Remember we talked about, you know, 200,000 freemen and 400,000 slaves? There are class crashes going on. You know, rich, poor, this kind of a thing. Culturally, the wealthy women didn't wear hair coverings at home. That, you know, it wasn't something they did. Though the poorer women were more prone, out of modesty, to wear a head covering. Well, whose house do you think they're meeting in? The poor person's house? On the third floor? With a cubicle you could sleep in? Or the patron's house? In a uh, patron-client honor-shame society? Well, you're meeting in the more well-to-do houses. Well, who's in charge of that house? Well, a well-to-do woman. She's not, it's my house. I'm not putting on a head covering. You have that issue going on. You have gender confusion issues going on where it seems to indicate some may be prone to just casting off regular gender appearance. So there's this, all this kind of um, hitches in actually just getting along. So I'm showing up to your house and your wife is indecently exposed. So a, a woman having her hair exposed, a married woman having her hair exposed in this culture was basically saying, hey, I'm available. And that's a distraction. Well, in this church, you know, we've had young ladies show up with, shall we say, too much leg. And so as, so as not to embarrass the, the lady, but not to distract the men, you know, let's just cover up a little bit of that leg, shall we? It's that kind of a thing. So I, I, should, I should be fair. You know, I have had in the history of this church uh, gentlemen who thought that they could wear women's clothing so long as it was hidden. And that wasn't going to happen either. <laughs> okay? These are real issues. He dealt with it then. We deal with it now. You know? That surprised you. I, you know, I, yeah. I never wanted to wear women's clothes. Huh? <laughs> I never wanted to wear women's clothes. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't Mr. Cole. No worries. <laughs> We're going to put that on record right now. <laughs> He's a man's man. <laughs> he woke me up with that. Yeah, I did. All right. So, in verses 17 through 34 of chapter 11, he addresses their mishandling of the Lord's Supper. And it's inside of this chapter that I, you know, I get my ministry life, life verse where he says, I don't have any praise for you because your meetings do more harm than good. <laughs> and I'm like, well, God forbid I ever run a meeting that does more harm than good. I don't want to do that. You know? In any event... So, I just want you to see that in context, he's been, he's been on 
corporate worship issues for, for a bit now. So he rose out of 1 Corinthians 11, 34. And mind you, one of the other reasons why these things are read aloud is because I don't know if this is just a result of paper being precious or whatever the case may be, but our words being separated by spaces, that's a modern thing too. Our punctuation, kind of a modern thing as well. Their writing would just be all together, all strung together. And so when you read it out loud, it helps you different. You know where the word, you know, you yeah, know where the word breaks like are All caps, no spaces, no grammatical markings. So it's just a it's, strings it's just of a letters. strings of letters. You know. How do you sort that out? Yeah, you read it out loud. <laughs> so you know we're in a different world. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, thank God that we have all these. Think about what. God has done in preserving His Word to drag all this forward into a format that we can read. That's pretty amazing. And it's... it's um, uh, Trueness isn't the word. It, the, that it reflects such a high percentage of the ancient texts that we do have is amazing. You know, there's so much has been retained in the centuries-long game of transmission through culture, through language, and everything else, how, um, how much it, it holds true to, quote-unquote, the original, okay? So after all this, you know, all these issues, dealing with corporate worship, he rolls into, there's no chapter break, they're reading, they've been, you know, someone's reading out loud, here you, here you, here and they've been talking about worship issues, and then he rolls right into 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. We're still inside this place of matters of corporate worship when we all come together to worship the Lord. Now regarding spiritual gifts, the ESV says, I do not want you to be ignorant. I want to point out to you something in the text. So a bunch of Greek letters coming. And you see that now concerning, that is a translation of petty day. The petty is the concerning and the day is now. Okay? Are you with me? So that, that petty day there in the Greek is this now concerning. This is a signal that he is addressing things that they wrote him about. This is, this is what tells you inside the text, you don't have to guess really, you just look at the context of the letter, that now Paul is speaking to things that they have asked him about. And this helps make sense of the letter. I, I didn't know this until recently. I've always, whenever I came up to, to 1 Corinthians, am I too loud? Let me know, because I have no register here. <laughs> when, when, I, when I would come to... 1 Corinthians 12, 1, I mean, now concerning spiritual gifts, oh, okay, i got to get on alert. Now Paul wants to talk about spiritual gifts. He's going to, I'm going to sit down and be taught by the apostle. That's how I always, it doesn't mean I couldn't read, I couldn't understand or, or, or learn from Scripture in that way, but I'm not hearing it in the way it was written. Does that make sense? So if you were to do the, the thought translation rather than the word-for-word -word translation, it would better be stated regarding your concerns oh regarding your concerns that's good let's yeah, look at that very good, yeah. let's, let's look at that so 
Now concerning, this, this verbiage, and now concerning inside of Petty Day. And I'm getting this, by the way, just so you know, I'm, I'm getting this from Gordon Fee's work. This is not Nicholas Larum, you know, all of a sudden putting on a Greek hat figuring this out. This is, this is a great exposure to myself, hopefully to you, of how exegesis is actually done. Well, how did they come up with that? Well, they just, they just made it up. No, they didn't make it up. It, they're doing their best to bring forward the text as the text was written. So now concerning. 1 Corinthians 7.1 Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, look, I, I've, I've sat under teachers who, if not particularly with this verse, with other verses, who would just decide to play with history in the text to make their point as they wanted to. Okay? The apostle tells us that concerning, concerning man and woman, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what Scripture says. No. I mean, you could read that in the Bible. That's not what he's talking about. See that not now concerning? Now concerning. That's our petty they. Now concerning what? Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. What did they write? Quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. That's what they wrote. That's not what Paul's writing them. That's what they wrote. Now in reference to invoice 2348. Please see receipt. Uh, he's quoting them. He's quoting them. And, God bless God, the ESV translators and other translators kind of cue you in on this because they put it in quotes. So he's not making an affirmative statement. He's not making an affirmative. He's not saying, now, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Well, if you're familiar with... You get kids, exactly. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 7, 1, what is it about? He has to address... You see, remember, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's addressing fornication. 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressing adult incest. At 1 Corinthians 7, he's addressing married couples who are denying each other conjugal rights for some spiritual reason. And here is, here is the great debate. There are those inside of Corinth who are saying, we are spirit people. But Paul, we're not so sure. And some of these spirit people thought, well, flesh bad, spirit good, so we shouldn't be involved in marital relations. Others said, flesh doesn't matter, only the spirit does. We can have all the relations we want with whoever we want. They're both wrong. Okay? But what I'm trying to show you is, is this now concerning. He's writing about the things they asked him about. This changes the entire dynamic for me with regard to 1 Corinthians 12.1, because I always read it as a declarative. Now, about these spiritual gifts, I, I'm not, I don't want you to be ignorant. I'm going to instruct you. No. <laughs> it's now about pneumatikos, spiritual matters. You brought to me spiritual matters. This pneumatikos is their word. Paul's preferred word for these issues is charismata. And then he begins to discuss it. He's taking these things up because they've asked him about it. He's heard about it. Now we're going to talk about it. Okay? 
7.25. Now, concerning the betrothed. So this is the whole issue of, of people who were engaged. Well, well, should I get married or should I not? And so he's going to address that. 8.1. Now, concerning food offered to idols. We know that all possess knowledge. Uh, so, so they're writing, well, Paul, we all have knowledge. You can't, I mean, you can't bust our chops because, we, you know, we all know. Changes the tenor of the understanding, doesn't it? This is where he says, yeah, well, knowledge puff us up, you know. Toward the end of the letter, chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection of the saints. So that's the vibe, okay? This is the apostle responding to the church he planted about things they asked him about. And so we move in to 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, the ESV says, which is not really right. You know, you could say spiritual gifts for charismata, but the word he picks up is pneumaticun, things of the Spirit. We're going to talk about things of the Spirit. Now concerning things of the Spirit, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Hey, think of that in terms of them saying, hey, everybody has knowledge. He's like, hey, you know, now you asked about spiritual matters. I, I'd hate for you to be ignorant. Catch the edge there? A little bit of irony in there? It's like saying, sit down, Junior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Woo-hoo. Praise God. Now, you walk up to anybody on the street and say, hey, can you say Jesus is Lord? And they say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Does that mean they're born again? <laughs> Does that mean they have the Holy Spirit? No. So is this what this is talking about? No. This is talking about the true acknowledgement from the heart that Jesus is kurios, the Lord. And it's a bit more emphatic in its context because these are this is the people who have competing deities and they have a government state system, the chief of which is honored as a god. So when you confess that some Jewish Messiah is king of the earth, you are making a true confession as opposed to your entire culture base. Recognizing that is a work of the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of uh, academic debate with regard to how these verses lay out, what they're saying, what's the circumstance for it, all of that. Not going to get into it. I do want to get into Gordon Fee's conclusion on his exposition of verse 3. And I'm quoting out of God's empowering presence. Fee writes, The presence of the Spirit and power and gifts makes it easy for God's people to consider the power and gifts as the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. Not so for Paul. The ultimate criterion for the, of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. 
Hallelujah, praise God. This is written in the 90s. We need to preach this. Oh my goodness. And if you would see or if you had seen some of the abuses that go on in Charismania under the name of the Spirit moved us, boy, oh boy, oh boy. That's a prophetic word just about to You're the Church of Jesus Christ. You're saying this was written in the 1990s? 1990s, yes, oh, sir. Yeah, good response. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Solid, solid stuff. See, the spiritual activity is not an end in itself. It's not about the show and tell. It's about Jesus as Lord. That's what it's about. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. And now we begin to get the frame of Paul's argument. Is that he is highlighting the variety. You see that? Varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities. And the unity of God. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. In doing this... Paul establishes his argument to come, what's going to follow in verses 7 forward and chapter 13 and chapter 14. He establishes that entire argument on firm theological ground, which is diversity within unity belongs to the character of God. Diversity within unity belongs to the character of God. The reason why it's the is the variegated, the multicolored grace of God. The reason why having differing gifts is because God, God's character is to be unified in diverse function and outcome. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a great counterpoint to, like, for instance, contemporary culture where in the business world they want to say, well, you know, Christians, they need to be more inclusive. They need to be more open to diversity. And da, da 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 Well, we can go to this and say, actually, this was God's idea to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Well, God's God's really big in diversity, not the kind you're talking about, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> and diversity without unity is not just anarchy; it's total chaos. It's chaos. And yeah. and um, and then you talk about uniformity versus unity, which we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the reason why there should be all these gifts, if you want, if you want to say, use, use that terminology, is because God is into diversity, but the same Spirit puts it. That's the framework of the argument. Now, I, I love this from D.A. Carson. This is from D.A. Carson's uh, Showing the Spirit, which is an expositional, expositional commentary on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And D.A. Carson writes, The triune God loves diversity, so much so, as someone has remarked, that when he sends a snowstorm, he makes each flake different. And then he follows on to say, we manufacture ice cubes. <laughs> I thought that was great. Boy, howdy, do we not. This is how it's supposed to be done. This is how you're supposed to dress. This is how you're supposed to talk. This is how God works. First Corinthians 12, 7. ESV says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. King James is, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. The NIV is, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The each one is distributive. It's what gets distributed out to 
uh, all that that we said, I'm clicking all the way back, that these varieties activities, all and every one. So it's how God distributes the manifestation to the congregation. It's the distribution of the manifestation within the congregation. You got it? To each one. But this is his thesis statement. Paul's thesis statement echoes the diversity unity argument, which he will illustrate in verses 8 through 10. So, after, you know, verses 4 through 6, diversities of gifts, diverse, you know, different energies, different this, same spirit, same Lord, same God. To each, the manifestation is given to profit with all, okay? So, that same, that same diversity, unity contrast carries out through all these verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each, that's the diversity, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Of the Spirit for the common good is the unity. Okay? We're following... Paul hasn't left the pattern he started with in verses 4, 5, and 6. Then he moves on. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. You see that color code? The, I, I put the diversity in, in orange and the unity in blue. So to each is orange. Spirit for the common good, blue. For to one, orange. Through the Spirit, blue. To another, orange. According to the same Spirit, blue. That's the frame of the argument. The frame of the argument is that God expresses Himself in diverse ways. That's His nature and character. Thus, His church should have that expression in diversity because what He's addressing is tunnel vision on uniformity and exaltation of a particular gift above and beyond all others as evidence of spirituality, of being spirit people. Have you got your prayer language, brother? Do you speak in tongues? That's trying to dismantle the superiority of the belief of tongues. <laughs> I'm just trying to follow the text, brother. So, so you see that, that, that bounce around. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. The thing of it is, is the point isn't the gifts mentioned. My entire life, I've looked at the section of Scripture as if the gifts mentioned were not only the point, but the very life itself of what it meant to be a full gospel, spirit-filled Christian. This was the defining end-all, do-all of my inheritance in the Holy Spirit. And lo and behold, by the form of the text and what he's saying, it's not even the point. Let me go forward see if this helps anybody. Verse 10, To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these there's your diversity, are empowered by one and the same Spirit, there's your unity, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay? Paul's point is not to enumerate or instruct about the gifts, but to argue that the one Spirit distributes a multiplicity of gifts. That's his point. Okay? Is this like as opposed to a spirit of a barking, a spirit of a tongue, a spirit of a like. There's different spirits. No, spirit. It's, it's different enablements, mm -hmm. different 
different shining forths of the Spirit, different grace endowments. So they weren't talking, they weren't arguing that there were multiple spirits. No. But they were, but in their argument, they were saying that prophecy is more valuable than healing, or healing more valuable than prophecy. No, by the nature of how he deals with what's going on, what they were saying was most important was tongues. Surprise. And, and yeah, so <laughs> tongues is really the nub of the conflict. And so what he gives is a representative list. In other words, he says that the Spirit gives a multiplicity of gifts. And so he gives them a representative list just as an illustration that there are all these other kinds of gifts. And a good portion of these gifts are showy. Well, that makes sense too because tongues spoken out loud in public is kind of showy as well. So, you know, if, if I were writing to this congregation who said, hey, the proof of being spiritual is that I could speak in a foreign language that I don't know and, and nobody else around me knows either, but it's from the Spirit, and we know it's from the Spirit. We all got it when we got baptized in the Spirit, and I'm writing the church and go, yeah, well, so is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart and being a calm, quiet spirit. That's... Okay, that's not untrue, but it's not really a winning argument. You know, so are miracles. So is healing. So is prophecy. The list is representative, not exhaustive, and compiled to deal with the issue at hand. Their singular focus on tongues. That's what he's dealing with. That's why this list is put together. So in verse 11 he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. As he wills. Yeah, These, yeah. So hear this. I've, I've read this most of my life in terms of how God either endows individual believers with all nine of these manifestation gifts or have heard it in more traditional Pentecostal circles as how God gives you uh, discernment, that's a misnomer, and you uh, the gift of interpretation, and you have the gift of prophecy, as if each, each person individually is apportioned their own private special gift. Well, that may or may not be so, but you can't prove it out of this because it's not the point of what he's writing. And the issue I've had most of my life is that that's exactly how I've read it, that the intent of this writing was to give an enumeration and instruction on how the, the believer is empowered by the Holy Spirit to overcome the world. Well, okay, I'm not saying that we're not empowered in these ways. I'm saying that that's not the point of why he's writing it. He brings them in as he wills it inside the congregation mm -hmm. for the congregation's edification. The focus is not on the individual 
and individual empowerment, the focus is on God's empowering through diversity to edify the community, the congregation. It's a communal thrust. It's a communal thing. I was thinking about it as a moment by moment, as it's needed. If somebody needs it, he'll give it. It yeah. may not be. It just could be just for that person in that moment who needs it. It, it, it could be there. That's what I was trying to convey. Across. There you go. So, I wanted to do all this preamble because we are. I've been promising this for a while, and again, God willing, we're going to go into this list and some of the others to understand or endeavor to understand what are some of these things that he highlighted. It's not that they're not grace endowments, but we just need to understand them in their own context. We don't go to the grace endowments to figure out through some man-made battery of questions which one I might happen to have. So I can just keep that in my drawer in my heart. And, ooh, I'll go to this congregation and I'll pop out my healing gift. And I'm going to go over here and pop out my healing gift. Because that's all I... It's not what it's about. Okay? Discernment's probably the one that really rankles me the most. Even back when I didn't know what it was. <laughs> now, now even more so. Okay? He apportions to each individually as he wills. The character of God drives and should drive the character of God's people. The character of God should drive the, the character of God's people relating to one another. This is why this diversity and unity is inside that theological framework, that diversity and unity inside the Godhead. Jesus, meeting Nicodemus, says, the wind blows where it wishes. <laughs> the wind blows where it wishes. The Spirit moves where He wants to question to you is, are you going to be cooperative in that move of the Spirit? He says, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If we're responsive to the ways in which He is blowing, we will be flowing in the right direction. Amen? Amen. That's it. <laughs>